we're going to start into our study of Hebrews uh, this year. I'm going to kind of be using some various passages, but Hebrews is one of those books that can be intimidating. It's one of the most mysterious and like one of the longest books in the New Testament. And we'll get to why I say mysterious here in just a little bit, but I want to provide us with an introduction this morning. But if I were to kind of surmise or give an overall theme to the book of Hebrews, it's this, that Jesus is greater, period. Jesus is greater, period. No matter how low the valley that you're in, Jesus is greater. No matter how much persecution and trial that you're in, Jesus is greater. No matter what type of mountaintop experience or victories that you're experiencing, Jesus is greater. You see, the early church was facing persecution And what the writer of Hebrews was doing, he was writing this letter to those who were facing such incredible adversity that they needed to be reminded that Jesus is greater than anything and everything that you could possibly face in this life. And the writer of Hebrews also encourages us to do the same. Encourage one another. I believe I speak for most of us in here. A word of encouragement is always well received. Amen? A word of encouragement is always well received. And can oftentimes be the difference in a horrible day, in a horrible season, in a horrible moment, to know that You have brothers and sisters. You have someone who is coming alongside of you and encouraging you. So we're going to take 30 weeks this year, on and off throughout the year, and we're going to study the book of Hebrews. We've spent the past couple years in, uh, I think it was the year of our Lord, was it 2021? We don't count 2020. Okay, it's just erased from history at this point. So time started again in 2021. But we started with the book of Ephesians. We spent 26 weeks in Ephesians. Last year, we did the book of Exodus. We spent 28 weeks in the book of Exodus. And this year, we're doing Hebrews. And I'm, I'm going to say this. Um, and, and hear it out of all the love and the compassion that I can possibly present it with. The westernized church, the Americanized church in particular, is plagued with something called biblical illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy. And that's been one of the reasons, to be honest with you, that we have been taking the approach to these books that we have over the past few years. Because I will be the first to stand and tell you today, this morning, I am nowhere near as, a, as literate as I need to be when it comes to the Bible. 
I need to dive into his word more. I need to consume more. I need to study his word more. Now understand that the word of God isn't the only way that God speaks to us, but it is the primary way. And if, if you have your, and I'm not, I'm not doing this to, to, you know, bring attention or anything, but if you have a physical Bible with you, spoiler alert, there's some right there in front of you in the pew, should be. If you have it, lift it up in the air, please. What we're holding in our hand right here, and what you have on your device, considering you're not already on social media, uh, what you have on your device, what we have is something that men and women of God for centuries before us yearned to have access to that we have. Right? Like, there, there have been times, the majority of time, as a matter of fact, to have this book, to be able to be held in our hands was such an amazing privilege and something that men and women in the past either weren't allowed to do or they didn't have access to it. And we've been gifted one of the greatest blessings that God could bless us with, with His Word being available to us. But yet, we do not give it the proper place in our life most of the time than what it should. You're guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. Because we're going to be talking about some things today, to be honest with you, that as believers, especially mature believers, we should already know. You should already, and some of you may already know that. But we're going to be challenged by the book of Hebrews, especially at the end of chapter 4, going into the beginning of chapter 5, of this maturing as a believer and getting off the milk and getting on to the meat. And since we're in Appalachia, taters too. Right. So we got meat and taters. But I want to challenge you as we go through this time don't neglect your Bible, don't neglect His Word, don't devalue that blessing that He has given you. And, and don't just depend on me to learn Scripture. Dive into it for yourself. I know that it's challenging. I know that we all are struggling at times with having availability and time available to us. But I find time to binge watch Netflix. Prime. I find time to mindlessly scroll social media. If I can find that, Guess what else I have time for? To be in God's Word. So let's, let's look at a few things this morning. And, and keep in mind, as we go through the book of Hebrews, we need to understand that the Christians during the time that this was written weren't of a lofty social status. They would have been viewed as street people basically. You see, we lose sight of this because we're sitting right now in a very beautiful building. We're sitting very comfortably. Climate controlled. For the most part, there's no threat 
Russ, we're meeting very safely here. And we look. There's plenty of men and women of influence, not only in our community, not only in our region, not only in our nation, but in our world, that proclaim the Christian faith. But it's not always been that way. And that's what the author of the letter of Hebrews is setting out to do, is addressing these people who are losing their homes. They've lost any source of income they can have. They're facing trials. They're facing persecution. They're facing all kinds of different things. They are even facing losing their life. And the author then goes on to say, that I want you to encourage one another and makes themes throughout this entire book of how Jesus Christ is greater than anything and everything we'll experience in this life. So let's start with the authorship of Hebrews. Who wrote Hebrews? We don't know. And if you think you know, guess what? You don't know. And trust me when I say that there have been men and women of God who are far smarter, far more intelligent than any of us sitting in here, maybe all of us combined, that have tried to solve this question of the authorship of Hebrews. And they've not been able to do it. I don't know who wrote Hebrews. You can check with me 15 years from now, and I'm still not going to know what person wrote Hebrews. Number one, because I believe that's a mystery that God has hidden and to remain a mystery. Number two, I've got many other things that I can understand that I'm going to pursue those. There's all kinds of thoughts. Could be Paul, could be Peter, could be Barnabas, could be Priscilla. It could be any of them. But here's what we know. As one theologian said, only God knows for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews because we certainly don't. But the important takeaway is the ultimate author of Hebrews is God himself. God, through his Holy Spirit, inspired this letter to be written. Now, when was it written? It was written in between the years of 64 and 69 AD. And here's kind of how we can understand that time frame and why that's the most settled upon time frame amongst scholars. 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed. And there's no reference to that. Beyond even the reference of it, there are still several references in the book of Hebrews to the sacrificial system, which would have still been taking place at the temple. So we can put a cap on it at 69 AD. Now we can trace it back, most likely, to 64. Some people believe 60. That's not out of the realm of possibility. But 64 AD would give us a little bit of another insight into possibly maybe who the target audience was. 
Now, we don't know exactly who the target audience was either. We know that it was written to converted Jews, to Jews who had converted to Christianity and Messianic belief. And we also know that there's really not a certain region that we can zoom into to understand that this is where, you know, because we know that the letter, um, you know, Paul's letter of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. Romans was written to Rome. There's not a country named Hebrews. A lot of Christian coffee shops named Hebrews. Get it? He, Bruce, he, Bruce. Listen, I'm not saying we're the most creative folk in the world, all right? Just saying. But the reason that I believe that maybe this date of 64 A.D. and this 64 to 69 A.D. would give us a little bit of an inclination as to maybe a hint as to who it was written to. And if it wasn't written directly to them, it would have most definitely applied to them. Does anybody remember what happened in Rome in 64 A.D.? Aaron Baldwin. Do you remember what happened in 64 AD? I'm challenging his history knowledge here. He probably knows. It's a good answer. There was a big fire that took place in Rome that Nero set. You see, because Nero, terrible leader, fantastic showman, terrible leader, fantastic. He won. Anybody seen Emperor's New Groove? Come on now. I mean, yeah. Like when Kuzco wants to have his new summer place built, and he goes and he, he takes, wanting to take the hill, Nero wanted a bigger palace built. And what he did to make room for it was he set fire to Rome. But instead of taking blame, what did he do? He blamed the Christians. He said, they're the ones that's responsible to it. So we see maybe the most intense time frame of persecution and martyrdom within the early church right then, whenever Nero begins to persecute Christians as justice for their quote-unquote burning of Rome. And that takes us to a why it was written why it was written. We can see that it's written to exhort and to encourage. To exhort and encourage. Now, I'm going to be honest with you again. As I look at two books of the Bible that have truly intimidated me as to preaching through them, one of them is Romans. The other is Hebrews. Some people may ask, not Revelation? No. No, I don't worry about Revelation. And here's what I'm, I'm going to quote a preacher named T.R. Williams. Advice he gave to one of his young students who was entering into the ministry. He said, allow the old men to preach Revelation. Young men don't need to touch it because old men won't be alive long enough to realize how wrong they were. But Romans and Hebrews, because they're so deep theologically, and they're beautiful, 
But to be honest with you, to stand up here and proclaim these deep theological truths and to go down all of those rabbit holes, it's intimidating. That is, that's got a, a gravity to it and a weight behind it. But when you look at the theme of Hebrews and you see that it is written, whether it's to the Roman church or not, when you see that it is written to believers who are living counterculturally and are beginning to suffer, they're beginning to be persecuted, they're beginning to face trials and tribulations, they have the entire world around them coming against them. And you see that the writer recognizes this, and he says, or she says, whoever wrote it says, the one thing that I need you to focus on is that Jesus Christ is greater than anything you'll face. And can I speak that into your heart and into your life this morning, that you may be facing persecution. You may be facing trial. You may be facing loss. You may be facing relational trial. You may be facing things that are coming at you from all angles. But church, hear me this morning, that no matter what you're facing, Jesus Christ is greater. Period. And that is the hope that we have to cling on to. You know, our enemy. Does anybody, does anybody, here, we're going to date some of you here. There was a Domino's commercial back in the day. All right, it was an OG Domino's commercial. All right, it said, avoid the noid. Anybody remember that? Come on, come on, yeah, yeah. I can tell by your hairline and the color of your hair you remember it, all right? Okay, I'm there with you. We had a pastor one time who preached a sermon that used NOID as an acrostic, as an acronym. He, he said that you need to avoid the NOID, the nasty old intimidating devil. I thought that's the most Appalachian thing I've ever heard in my life. There's some glory into that. But we have an enemy. We have a foe that would love nothing more than for you to never, ever serve Jesus Christ. But the next best thing, if he can't stop you from doing that, the next best thing for him is for him to discourage you. For him to discourage you. And he'll take every opportunity he can to discourage you. He will manipulate you. He will manipulate your relationships. He will even manipulate what happens in here. He'll attempt to do that all that he doesn't want you living victoriously for Jesus Christ. For our enemy comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. So what we face is not that different from what these Hebrew believers were facing that this letter was written to. Discouragement, loss, trial, pain, hopelessness, doubt, fear, despair. 
They faced all of that. And what the enemy was doing was he was serving to sever their relationship with Jesus Christ by removing their focus from Jesus Christ. And one of the worst things that we're going to discover as we go through this study that happens whenever our focus turns off of Jesus Christ is the term apostasy. We don't use that word a lot, and it basically means to abandon your faith or to step away from what you believe. Folks, let me, let me tell you something. If you ever get to the place that you're so discouraged and it's driving you away from this word and apostasy and that falling out is getting ready, you can feel it setting in, the cure for that is not to find truth elsewhere. The, true, the cure for that is to ground yourself even further in the truth that you find in this book. We don't, we don't reaffirm our belief in the truth by seeking other truth. When the government trains people to be uh, agents that spot counterfeit currency, they don't send them out and have them study every counterfeit product known to man. No, they don't even put a counterfeit in front of them until the end of the training. What do they do? They put the real thing in front of them. And they say, we want you to study this. We want you to memorize this. We want you to know this so well, back and front, that you can spot something that's fake simply by knowing so well the real thing. And that's the same thing we need to do. Because the enemy will discourage us, and there will be times that we will question our faith. Amen? Just be real. There, will be, there have been times in most of your lives, I'm sure, where you have questioned, am, am, am I really doing the right thing? Like, is this really, is this really the right thing? We see John the Baptist face this situation. Right? He was the one that was responsible and extremely obedient and committed to his mission of making, making known, making straight the path, proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. The ones who would redeem us, the one that would save us, the one that would set the prisoner free. And yet, John the Baptist, sitting in a prison cell, sends his disciples to Jesus, the one that he had proclaimed, the one that he had baptized, the one that he had said, that's him. That's the man who comes to take away the sin of the world. He said, go ask him if he's really that guy. Right? It's like, go ask him. Like he had given his whole life, was willing to lay down his life, was currently in a prison cell, and he began to doubt. Why? Because where he was, in his mind, contradicted his message of setting the prisoner free. See, it's not unusual when we find ourselves in places to where we begin to doubt and have questions about, is this really what's happening? Is this really the will of God? Did I just say that was willy the will of God? Willy to will. Elmer Fudd quote, insert that there. But when we begin to question if it is really the will of God or not, in prayer and in the Word, that's your prescription. Take it twice daily, at least. But let's look 
at what the writer of Hebrews tells us, because this is a book, while deep and rich in beautiful doctrine and theology, on the surface, it is a simple message of exhortation and encouragement. And one of the writer's favorite statements is, let us. Let us. So let's look. I'm going, to, I'm going to read some of these for you here. So let's look at the let us statements. We're going to start with uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 11. Uh, verse 1, let us fear. While a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Then he kind of comes along in verse 11 of the same chapter and kind of undergirds that. He says, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. He continues with let us statements. In 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Let us press on to maturity. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Do you see what he's addressing here? That apostasy, that falling away, that abandoning the faith. He's saying, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then let us show gratitude. I, th I think there's something in all of us right there that we need to show more gratitude for what we have. Amen? Amen. Let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. And now here's one passage that I really want us, uh, I'm going to take just a few moments and focus in on it. Chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, and we're going to talk about encouragement. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today. There's references in like, Hebrews 10, 32 through 35, where it talks about that if we're in prison together, if we're prisoners together for Christ's sake, then we need to encourage each other in our imprisonment. Then in Hebrews 13, 15, it says that if you're not in prison, but you have fellow believers that are in prison, encourage them, pray with them, be with them, just as though you are in prison also. We are called to encourage one another. Encourage one another this day while it is still today. Now I'm going to ask the praise team, they, they've got a really special treat for us this morning. So I'm going to ask them to come back up. You know, Jesus has commanded us to be salt and to be light.
Folks, if you're following Jesus Christ, we have a light to shine. And it's not only a light to shine in darkness. It is that. Amen? We are to shine a light in darkness. But we are also called to shine the light in each other's lives by encouraging each other.